Hi, welcome back to On The Brain podcast, where we showcase exciting research at University of Calgary. Today, we talk about pain. We all stub our toes from time to time, but some people experience chronic pain. For some, the current treatments don't work that well, but a new solution might be on the horizon. Let's find out more about cannabinoids as a potential treatment for pain. Right. It is a pleasure to be here today on, on the Brain Podcast to be joined by Dr. Erica Harding. Uh, welcome. Thank you. And today we're going to be talking about your research. So can you give us uh, a brief rundown of what you actually research right now? Uh, so right now in the lab, um, so I broadly study pain. Um, and today I'm going to be talking about one of my main projects, which is uh, looking at cannabinoids and uh, how they may be uh, pain relieving. Great. And so how did you actually come to be studying uh, this area? So you, you did your PhD in the University of Toronto? Yes. Yeah. So I actually started my journey all the way over in Halifax um, and did my uh, Bachelor of Science at uh, Dalhousie University. And so when I was there, I was studying these little tiny creatures uh, called trichoplax adherens. You don't need to know, but <laughs> basically they don't have any neurons present within them, and yet they're still capable of coordinated movement. Mm -hmm. um, and what I found was that this coordinated movement was because of calcium, and calcium was regulating it. And so from there on, I just sort of fell in love with calcium. <laughs> And so that's what brought me to University of Toronto, where I did my PhD. And during that PhD, I uh, studied pain-relating neurons in the spinal cord and how uh, calcium is regulated within them to help the processing of pain and noxious stimuli. And so as a pain researcher uh, with a newly minted PhD, I was looking around and um, actually what I... Uh, was starting to look around my external examiner on my thesis committee was Gerald Zamponi. And uh, he is uh, very much a behemoth in the calcium world. And, you know, I love calcium. <laughs> uh, so I was able to uh, join here at University of Calgary uh, about eight weeks before the pandemic started. So it's been quite the journey, um, but I'm very happy to be here. And to be supported by both uh, supervisors that I have, Dr. Gerald Zamponi and Dr. Tuan Trang, and working together with both of them on pain and cannabinoids. Great, well, we're happy you're at the University of Calgary. Uh, so can you tell me what is pain? So this is a very tricky question, actually. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting and kind of fascinating about studying pain is that when, you th when every person here's the word pain in their mind. They know what pain is to them, and they can think of examples of when they've been in pain, like stubbing their toe, touching a hot stove. But then when it comes to actually quantifying that pain, it becomes quite difficult. Uh, so one of the things that we're very lucky to have as pain researchers is we have an association called the International Association for the Study of Pain. And uh, one of the things that the IASP uh, does for us is they give us definitions to go by. And so the definition by the IASP is that pain is an unpleasant sensory experience 
which is associated with actual or potential tissue damage. So that is our overarching and in some ways not terribly helpful definition of pain. <laughs> okay, so what you're kind of alluding to is that everybody experiences pain differently. So you would experience pain differently than I would. Um, all right. And so how does your research relate to pain? So um, one of the problems with pain is that we have an acute pain experience uh, in a person. And that could be due to a tissue injury or due to disease. Um, some diseases like uh, diabetes or arthritis can actually cause a lot of pain for those patients. And um, what happens is that over time, that pain doesn't go away. And it stays and stays, and then it becomes chronic pain. And at that point, you have a chronic pain patient. Um, and so our definition of a chronic pain patient is a person who has been suffering with pain that is intractable. Um, has not gone away for over three months. And the problem is we don't actually have a lot of great treatments for these people. Um, we don't have a lot of good options for management of their pain, and what we're trying to do is find better options for them to improve their quality of life. Great. Uh, what are the current options for treating pain? So um, when it comes to acute pain, uh, so tissue injury, um, or arthritis, uh, which is a type of chronic pain where you have inflammatory components in the periphery. Uh, we typically have NSAIDs, so those are non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So uh, typically you would think of like acetaminophen, uh, ibuprofen, those types of things. And those work to decrease inflammation. And by decreasing inflammation, you uh, can reduce pain for those people. Uh, when it comes to chronic pain, um, and especially a particularly vicious type of chronic pain uh, called neuropathic pain, um, we don't have a lot of options. Um, so for patients with neuropathic pain, um, what happens is there's sort of like this ramping up that happens in the spinal cord. And these NSAIDs are no longer helpful to them or are, have decreased efficacy for them. Uh, so for these patients, uh, we have NSAIDs, we have opioids uh, like morphine, um, we have uh, some other uh, atypical type medications, uh, including um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, um, uh, serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, and what are referred to as gabapentinoids, uh, which actually function at voltage-gated calcium channels. And the basic idea here is to decrease the activity in the spinal cord to decrease pain. Okay, and are there problems with our, our current treatments for pain? Yeah, I, <laughs> we all know there's a very bad um, issue with uh, opioids and long-term use of opioids. Um, unfortunately, we have a very high density of opioid receptors within the reward systems in our brain and this can lead to substance use disorders. Uh, it's not just that, though. Um, opioids also can cause this um, paradoxical increase in pain over time with use. Uh, so even though we can prescribe opioids, and they are useful for a number of patients, uh, for some patients, they're not helpful at all, and they can actually even make the problem worse. Hmm. I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how many people experience chronic pain 
So the numbers are incredibly high. So in Canada, it's about 20 to 25% of all adults have chronic pain. And what I think is the hardest part is that your typical chronic pain patient will suffer from chronic pain for over 20 years. Mm. And during that 20 years, they will experience minimal um, reduction in their pain and they'll have to suffer through many side effects, not just of opioids, but um, uh, SNRIs and SSRIs and gabapentinoids also have side effects along with them. So we really want to try to find something that can help increase quality of life for these patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're saying there's up to 25% experiencing chronic pain. Our current solutions are not cutting it. In fact, they can lead to addiction and even increased pain. So there's definitely a, a need for a, a better solution in this area. So how does your research address this area? So one of the uh, things that has anecdotally come out as being potentially relieving of pain uh, are cannabinoids. So uh, cannabinoids, um, i.e. cannabis, has been used recreationally for thousands of years. Um, it's actually even been uh, used for pharmaceutical purposes as far back as I think it's 4,000 or 6,000 BC back mm. in ancient China. It actually featured in pharmacopoeias back then, uh, which were sort of like uh, pharm pharmaceutical atlases. Uh, and so even back then, people noted that cannabis could have some um, medicinal qualities. Uh, so we don't really know how we ended up to today where, you know, in a lot of countries it is still illegal. Even in Canada, it's still highly regulated. Uh, but part of what has been a um, side effect of this is that research on cannabis is still very limited and still very much in its early days. Uh, so what we're looking at is the anecdotal finding that cannabis seems to have some analgesic properties. And when we say analgesic, uh, what we mean is pain relieving. Um, and one of the ways that we're studying this is through the interaction and how uh, the activation of cannabinoid receptors uh, results in inhibition of synaptic transmission. So how do cannabinoids affect the synaptic transmission? So cannabinoids, um, for example, let's use our most uh, well-known example, uh, THC or delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol. Uh, so often just referred to as THC, that is the psychoactive component of cannabis, um, and it's well known that it inhibits synaptic transmission. And so it does this in a, several different ways. Um, basically what happens is on, so if you have your, I can move this because we're on video. Uh, if you have your presynaptic neuron and you have your postsynaptic neuron here, on the presynaptic terminal, you actually have cannabinoid receptors present. Uh, and there's one main cannabinoid receptor present there, which is very aptly named cannabinoid receptor 1, CB1. Uh, and the CB1 receptor um, present on that presynaptic terminal is a G-protein coupled receptor, uh, which basically means that upon binding of our example THC to that CB1 receptor, we have an initiation of several different signaling cascades. So GPCRs can be excitatory or stimulatory or inhibitory, and cannabinoids are inhibitory. And uh, they will initiate signaling cascades that reduce um, a 
signaling molecule called cyclic AMP, uh, which I do not study, so I don't actually know that much about it. Uh, but they also will, uh, through G protein cascades, directly uh, by that G protein interacting with presynaptic voltage-gated calcium channels, it can actually inhibit and shut down those voltage-gated calcium channels. And the reason why this is particularly important is because uh, synaptic vesicular release is critically dependent on those voltage-gated calcium channels. So if you shut them down, you're shutting down synaptic release. So you're shutting down the opening of those vesicles into the cleft, you're, sh you're shutting down all that neurotransmitter. Uh, so this is the way that uh, cannabinoids function by reducing activity. Okay, so your cannabinoids will affect the um, calcium activity which uh, blocks synaptic transmission. Is that right? Yep, exactly. All right. Yeah. And how does this relate to pain? So in the pain world, it's actually a little bit easier than trying to understand how this uh, can work to have its psychoactive effects. So we're actually a little bit lucky there. Uh, so in the pain, in our little pain world, um, if you have an injury, uh, for example, if I... Um, hit my finger in a door, something like that, it's going to activate uh, nociceptors. So those are receptors which uh, result in the end experience of pain. Uh, so they will take in a noxious insult and convert that into an action potential. And then the action potential is going to travel up my primary sensory neuron and it's going to go into the spinal cord. And from the spinal cord, it'll go up to the brain where I'll eventually feel pain. Uh, so cannabinoids actually work at the junction in the spinal cord between the periphery and spinal cord neurons. Uh, so, they, so we have a lot of cannabinoid receptor, that CB1 receptor, present on that presynaptic terminal between the primary sensory neuron and our spinal cord neuron. So when you have a cannabinoid present, like THC, it, what it's doing is it's actually reducing this signal transmission from your hand up to your brain. Um, and it does this through these the blockade of voltage-gated calcium channels. Okay, so you're essentially having the THC block the pain signal so that it doesn't reach your brain? Exactly, yep. All right, and so what have you been looking at specifically about this process? So um, a lot of the early studies in cannabinoids um, and how they function were, were actually not performed in the spinal cord um, or in the periphery. They were performed in the brain. And one main difference is that in the brain, the presynaptic voltage-gated calcium channel complement is actually a little bit different. So in the brain, you have mostly N-type and PQ-type voltage-gated calcium channels. The difference between those is not really relevant today. <laughs> But just keep that in mind. You have N and PQ predominantly present. Um, however, at this junction in the spinal cord between the primary afferents and the spinal cord neurons, it's actually N and a different uh, channel altogether called T-type. Uh, and specifically, it is a subtype called CAV 3.2, uh, which is a very big field of study within Gerald's lab. Um, so because um, everyone has been studying in the brain, no one has really studied how cannabinoids um, and the cannabinoid cascade could be interacting with CAV 3.2. Okay, so you're looking at what the differences are uh, when you study cannabinoids in the brain versus when you study it in the periphery. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, so when you're working in the brain and you have your cannabinoid, your THC present, um, and it's when it's activating your CB1 receptor, you have um, activation of this G protein cascade, and then you have block of N and PQ channels. Um, but when it comes to uh, in the periphery, we know that we have block of that N-type because it's been shown in the brain, um, but what's happening to the T-type channels? It's never been studied, so that's where I come in. What is happening to the T-type channels? <laughs> so I, I feel like I've really built this up, but actually nothing, <laughs> nothing. is really the interesting answer. Um, but then we can tack on something else onto this, which is actually, it's not nothing, it's just very complicated. Um, so what I found, and uh, basically what I was trying to do, was to see if activation of the CB1 receptor can inhibit CAV 3.2, this T-type calcium channel, in the same way that it inhibits uh, N-type channels. And so I took uh, my specific cannabinoid, so I use a synthetic cannabinoid because with licensing they're easier to actually get a hold of. Um, and so with my synthetic cannabinoid, I see, uh, block, I see this inhibition of CAV2.2 um, through this G-protein cascade. Um, however, when I try and look in the CAV3.2 channel to see if there's inhibition of this channel, I don't see any inhibition. So it looks like when you activate the CB1 receptor, you have inhibition of this N-type channel, but not the T-type. Okay, so what does that mean for feeling pain when you're exposed to cannabinoids? So what it would suggest is actually that um, if you have your cannabinoid like THC and you administer it, um, it's going to block one component, like half of that transmission into the spinal cord, but not all of it. And now here is actually where the plot thickens. <laughs> and this is where things get a little bit interesting. So as we know, cannabis isn't just THC. It's got a lot of other different things in it. Um, so it's actually about 50 different phytocannabinoids are present in cannabis, and you also have these things called terpenes, which are aromatic compounds. Um, so what I wanted to do next was to look at another type of cannabinoid. And so I looked at CBD or cannabidiol. And cannabidiol has been very big in the news lately because it seems like you'll see that it, you know, it pretty much does everything. It reduces inflammation, it reduces anxiety, it helps you sleep, it helps with pain. Um, and the funny thing is, um, and not a lot of people know this, but hopefully more people will know this now, after today, is CBD actually has no action at cannabinoid receptors. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely heard a, a million different headlines claiming all of those, those things. So it has no action. What about the other compounds, the 50 others that you mentioned? Uh, so we're, we're looking into it. Um, some of them seem to have some action. Um, terpenes do not seem to have an action at cannabinoid receptors, but they have action at a myriad of other different types of receptors. Um, and one thing that we actually are studying in Gerald's lab, and there was a publication recently um, by uh, Vinny and uh, Sun in the lab, they actually found that some terpenes can actually in directly inhibit this T-type calcium channel. So you can sort of bypass the need for the CB1 receptor entirely and block it directly. Okay, so does that mean that 
cannab or in consuming cannabis could have an effect on pain. Exactly. Um, and so I even took it one step further. And I took that CBD itself. And so if you look in the literature, um, it, and um, there's a really nice review, I think it's from Roger Pert Pertwee. Um, and in it, he goes over the uh, agonist and antagonist um, concentrations for different cannabinoids at the cannabinoid receptor. And at it, you can see that the that CBD has, it will only become an agonist at these receptors at like, I think it was 50 micromolar. And a person is just never going to reach 50 micromolar unless they're consuming a very large amount. Um, and then other studies have looked and, and seen maybe, you know, there might be some antagonistic quality of CBD at the CB1 receptor, um, but it's really up in the air. Um, and so when I was looking in the literature, I found a study from Mark Connor's group out in um, Australia, and they had this one finding where it looked like CBD could actually directly inhibit RT-type channel CV3.2. Um, and so I kind of was wondering, maybe that will work in our hands as well. And sure enough, it does. Um, so what you can kind of get together and have this picture of is you have your traditional mechanism through which cannabinoids can function. So you have your um, activation of the CB1 receptor on neurons. And this results in inhibition of synaptic transmission through blockade of N-type and PQ-type channels. But there's also this second kind of funky, weird way that cannabinoids can function in only certain types of cannabinoids. So in our case, CBD, but not THC or the synthetic cannabinoid, can actually directly interact with, the, with this CAV3.2 channel and block it. And so what this is suggesting is that if you could combine both these mechanisms together and have this direct block and this indirect mechanism through the CB1 receptor, that's going to be even better for treating pain. Hmm. Very interesting. So is it important then that there's a balance of THC and CBD in the cannabis, or are these compounds present in, in everything that someone might buy? So what my research would suggest is that a combination of both could be more helpful, yeah. Um, and it's particularly beneficial because uh, THC on its own is highly psychoactive, and this may not be the side effect that a chronic pain patient would want. Um, usually a chronic pain patient is trying to get back quality of life. They're trying to get back uh, the capacity to go to work for a full day, to come home and spend time with their family. And a psychoactive component kind of interferes with that. And the nice thing about CBD is it actually has no psychoactive component because it's not activating those CB1 receptors. So that you come to this sort of intriguing idea where you could lower the THC and increase the CBD, and you could still have inhibition of those voltage-gated calcium channels. Hmm. That's very interesting. So what do you want to look at in the future? A lot of different things, um, but I'm just going to tease one small thing. Um, so one thing that uh, we found in the lab, um, so Ivana in the lab, um, 
she's a very highly skilled research associate, and uh, when she saw this effect of this direct inhibition of CEV 3.2, um, she was kind of interested in what was happening here, and um, maybe somehow the CB1 receptor could still be interacting with the T-type channel because um, if you have a compound and it combined to two different receptors, there's something similar about them. And GPCRs really love to come together, and they come together when they're very similar. Uh, so what she did is she ran uh, this experiment called a co-immunoprecipitation, um, which basically tests to see if two different types of receptors uh, will come together. And sure enough, what she found is actually that the CB1 receptor and CV3.2 do co-aminoprecipitate, which is telling us that in some way they are interacting, even though it seems like it's not through this G-protein cascade. Uh, so that's one thing that we're really interested in studying to see if maybe um, the CB1 receptor can actually affect trafficking of this channel to the membrane. Hmm. Well, thank you for the, the teaser. I look forward to hearing in the future how this turns out. And I guess, lastly, uh, do you have any advice for any grad students that are starting out in their degrees? Uh, what would you say to them? Um, well, I would say that, you know, it, like, it's very stereotypical to say, but, you know, it is a marathon. Uh, you do have to take your time. Um, don't always think about the ending and think about how fast you have to get there. Take time to live your life as well. Uh, because, you know, a PhD and a master's is like six, seven years of your life. That is a big chunk of your life. Make sure that, you know, you balance all the different responsibilities and all of your research and also live your life as well. All right, I'll, I'll try to take that into account <laughs> for myself. Is there anything else you wanted to say about your research? Anything that we missed? Um, uh, nothing for today, I don't think. Great. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. I definitely learned a lot. That was very interesting. So thank you. Thank you so much. And best of luck on your future endeavors. Thank you.